So let's go to the Word of God. Let's go to James chapter 2. We have a long passage to cover tonight, uh, so I will be as brief as I can and still try to do justice to the text. So I'll go ahead and start reading in James 2 and read verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's ask God's help in understanding his word and him through his word tonight together. We pray, God, to you tonight. We ask for your help. We cannot understand your word and see how it needs to transform us tonight without your help. We ask that you would speak through me, not that... The glory would come to me or through, through anything that I say or anything that I um, seem to try to communicate tonight other than your word. Uh, may you help us to know Christ and know what it means to be faithful to Christ tonight in obedience to his word through this text tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, one of my nieces uh, is, has been and is currently obsessed about favorites. So whenever she sees me, uh, whenever she sees anyone in the family, one of her first things that comes out of her mouth is, what is your favorite? You can fill in the blank. Could be a color. Could be a food. Could be an animal. And... Uh, it's built up to the point where she's asking very specific questions, like, what is your favorite land animal? Uh, what is your favorite breakfast food? Uh, some of her questions even became strained to the point where we as a family have an inside joke whenever someone asks something that seems a bit out of place, which is, what is your favorite thing between the kitchen sink and the fridge? She's so obsessed with these, this idea of favorites. Well, one Sunday afternoon, I did a fun chemistry experiment with her and the other nieces, and in the middle of all the fun we were having, she loudly declared, Uncle Ryan is my favorite uncle. She has two uncles. All of a sudden, 
This innocent liking of favorites turned into something more troublesome. Of course, we quickly and fervently dispelled that notion and reminded her that just because I had done something fun with her doesn't mean I'm any more valuable than her other uncle or any other people in her life. But like my niece, we as Christians can view other Christians in the church and how valuable they are in a very narrow and pragmatic way. However, this is merely a symptom of a much deeper problem, as we will see in the text we have before us tonight. So verse 1, James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The word partiality, um, it's also translated in the NIV as favoritism, means to make judgments about people based on external appearance. One commentator said, we are not to make decisions about people based on any external factor, whether it be dress, color of skin, or general physical appearance. In fact, God stresses very often that it's not about what's on the outside of a person, but what's at the heart of a person that is the most important thing. Haven't we testified of that in the book of 1 Samuel? That even when Samuel is looking for the next king after Israel, of course, fails in looking on the outside uh, regarding Saul... Uh, Samuel does the same thing, a faithful man of God. He goes to the, the sons of Jesse, and he sees, and he thinks, oh, Eliab, he's tall and strong. He's looking on the outward appearance, but God says, no, there's one who's not even in line to be king, who you need to be looking for, one whose heart is a heart after my own. Back in Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 18, the Lord says to Israel, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. In fact, God expected the Israelites to be like him in this. Leviticus 19.15, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So we see clearly the command and the reality set before us. There is to be no partiality. There is to be no um, differentiation when it comes to categorizing people in the, in the church. Now, interestingly, interestingly enough, this is the second of two times that James refers to Jesus directly. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, James said, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice he's added a title. Why use the title, the Lord of glory? You see that there in the text? The Lord of glory. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 4, 17, where Paul says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Glory is that state of being like God to which all Christians are destined. And which Pastor Stephen reminded us in Ephesians 2 this morning, we currently have in Christ. He has seated us in heavenly places with Christ. We who are dead are now alive in him. So describing Jesus as the Lord of glory reminds God's people the end to which all history draws itself. That Jesus is standing as the judge at the door. James 5, 9. And it's important for us because we as human beings, when we're stressed, when we go through circumstances in our life that are beyond our control, that seem to overwhelm us, we end up giving too much glory to human beings and not the glory to Jesus himself. James is insisting that a person who has faith in this Lord of glory should not show favoritism. 
people who, people in the church who discriminate against other people in the church. This is inconsistent with true faith in Christ. So this passage nests itself between true religion, that was talked about last week, and true faith. And James is using an example here to really bring out what's been in people's hearts the whole time. Verses 2 and 3, he uses an example. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who, fares, who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Now, whether this was a real or hypothetical situation, we're not sure. But the point is, things have gotten very bad in this church. Imagine the situation in your head where people are coming into the church, the very assembly of God, and there are people in the church who clearly have some standing with these people and who are directing them to one place and another person to another place based on their economic status. We would be aghast at this at Subaru Road, wouldn't we? If we saw a homeless person walking in our doors and we saw the mayor walking in our doors, for us to seat them in different places, we would think that's terrible. This is how bad it's gotten at this church in Jerusalem. Whether it's real or hypothetical, the situation is clear enough. Christians are clearly looking at people very differently. Christians are trying to find favor in a very worldly way. Verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now this word distinctions frequently refers to an internal attitude of doubt in the New Testament. In fact, James has already used the word in verse uh, 6 of chapter 1. He said, but him, let, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. He warned Christians there that a divided heart in the relationship to God and to one another is a terrible thing, is a problematic thing. It's going to end up with shipwreck faith. And he's pointing to the reality in the church and going, do you not see, do you not see how your very division of the church, of these people who walk into your doors, whether they be visitors or members, by dividing them into categories based on their value, you are pointing out that you, you, you as a church are divided in your mind. You don't understand who your Lord is. Your Lord is another Lord. Notice he doesn't pull any punches. He says, what have we become? What has the church become? The church has become judges with evil thoughts. Now this verdict sounds dark. Evil thoughts, James? Really? That's how bad it is? Couldn't this just be addressed, you know, from the pulpit? Just a couple minutes? Just make sure that the people don't, you know, we don't divide the people. Okay, we're good. Now, this implies that we as Christians, we as the church, have a temptation to stand in God's place in judgment over people. These actions are not merely a result of slightly unacceptable thoughts, but evil thoughts. We need continually, continually reminded of just how sinful how evil our sin is. James addresses 
just how personal a problem it is in verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? This is a very personal problem to James. And so he shifts the focus. He calls to attention. We've heard this before from our pastors. Listen, church. Are you listening to me? There's special attention drawn to what James is about to say next. We may be asking the same questions that this church was asking at the time. What's the big deal? You say these are evil thoughts. They come from evil thoughts. But how... How are they evil? What's so wrong about this? So James starts this out. It goes, number one, he says, it goes against who God is and the way that God operates in his plan of redemption. Now, we don't have time tonight to go into the whole doctrine of election, but it does not contradict God's impartiality. When God chooses a people, in Deuteronomy 7, he says to the Israelite nation, just in case they've misread or misthought why they've been chosen as a people, he says, it was not because you were more in number than any other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loved you. Paul needs to remind us of this in Ephesians 1, verse 5, where it says, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of his will. Not because of what we were looking like on the outside, not because of the heritage that we have, not because of the place we were born with, born at, not because of the economic status we've reached in our lives, not because of our hair color, or whatever petty things we tend to categorize each other as, but because God loves us. We are reminded over and over again in the New Testament that according to 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27, Paul has to remind us, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God sees the poor in spirit. This, this actually connects back to, uh, as James often does, to Jesus' own teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. God delights especially to shower his grace on those whom the world has discarded and on those who are most keenly aware of their own inadequacy. If we read into James that this, this mentioning of poor and rich is just uh, an economic status, we're misunderstanding James and the spirit of what he's trying to teach us. Because the problem is not rich and poor economic status. It's rich and poor definitions. What does it mean to be rich? What does it mean to be poor? What does success really look like? We need to really ask ourselves that tonight. What does a healthy church look like? What does a successful church look like? Our culture is slowly becoming more anti-Christian. But they still, they still can't solve their problems. <laughs> But they're becoming more anti-Christian, so there's a reaction in our hearts. What do we do? How do we stay strong? How do we fight this? 
Well, our tendency, our temptation is to fight fire with fire. It's to use the, the very tactics that the world uses against us, against them. And so James continues in verse 6 when he gives a second reason as to why partiality or favoritism is so wrong or so evil. Because this is how the world operates. This is what the world thinks, and it makes no sense for us to, to think the same way. Notice in verse 6, he says, But you have dishonored the poor man. The very thing that God has honored, you've dishonored. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into courts? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? There's almost a logical failure to realize that even though these Christians who live in a very rich, uh, oppressive society, sound familiar? Not much has changed. But in their society, the rich could just take your property. They could sue you in court. They could take everything from you in an instant. Grave injustices were done every single day. And and the way they respond to it is to go, well, let's, let's make sure that these people are honored. Let's make sure that these people who are oppressing us, that we somehow win their favor. And this problem that we have in our society, we're going to use society to solve the problem. We do the same thing when we think that politics is going to solve a political problem. Whether your problem today is personal, whether it's a problem in the church, whether it's a problem in society, Christian, the solution is the same. There is only one solution who can meet our greatest need. Rich and poor, political or not, everyone needs Jesus Christ to meet their greatest need. And as one preacher put it, when we start dividing people, we start thinking that we can meet their needs in a way that we think we can meet them. And what we end up doing is we end up not meeting their greatest need. Verses 8 through 13. This last section is a difficult section. James on a whole, as a whole book is, is difficult at times. But this is James's strongest point as to why favoritism or partiality is evil. It violates the kingdom law of love. Verses 8 through 13, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Just a few verses after the Lord asks his people, commands his people to be impartial like he is. In Leviticus 19, 18, he says, you shall love the, your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I'm reminded of Jesus's defining of the neighbor, of what neighbor means back in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember how Jesus phrased it. Remember what Jesus's purpose in bringing up that parable was. The people in Jesus's day thought the neighbor was just like them. Someone that they could easily identify with. Someone who was, was similar to them in their ethnic background, in their religious background. But Jesus said, no, your neighbor is anyone you might come into contact with. 
including foreigners, including even seemingly enough enemies. Think of what Paul had said in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the reality of the church. This is where our identity lies. Not based on things that the world judges us on. Now it's interesting that he uses the term royal law. But we shouldn't be surprised. James has introduced this chapter with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We sing of Jesus as our king. We read in 1 Samuel that there is no human king that can bring peace, that can solve the problems of any nation. But there is a divine king. There is one who came to earth who became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross, and who now is seated above all other powers. And that is the one who is our king. In the church, we have an opportunity to build a kingdom that is counter to what the world offers. In case we think that the world is somehow offering something better uh, or somehow that our, our accepting culture is somehow better, um, this past Friday, uh, during one of my classes, we celebrated Halloween. We didn't have a trunk or treat, just had food and drinks and, and just uh, enjoyed uh, Hocus Pocus on the Disney uh, Plus app. About a third of that class identifies as lesbian, gay, etc. Almost a third. And one of the young men in that class, one of the smartest individuals in that class, came in in a princess dress. And the tone of the room was celebratory. Celebrating his identifying as a woman. And it was interesting because that is what our culture is promoting. That's what gives you some social credit nowadays. But a few minutes later, this young man let a two-liter full of foam go all over the floor. And he was trying to mop it up. Nobody was there to help him. What's the point? When it didn't give any social credit, people didn't care. Clean up your own mess. The world has nothing good to offer. It's still filled with hatred. But our king offers something much better. There is no one who comes to Jesus who is turned away. We can testify of that this morning for each one of us. We sit here amongst a, a very different people, people from very different parts of the country, people from very different backgrounds, people from very different education levels. And yet, we can be united in Christ. Isn't that incredible? James says, so speak and so act 
as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. It's interesting that with these commands, James returns to the dominant theme in this section of the letter. Just a couple weeks ago, we heard that theme, be be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. But attached to this reminder of this theme is a warning. In Matthew 5, 7, Jesus said that blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. There is a judgment coming. And James flips it on its, on its head, that truth. He says, in essence, cursed are those who are not merciful, for they will not be shown mercy. The discrimination that James's readers are practicing is the opposite of what God's mercy through Jesus Christ, the King, has shown us. And the warning is, is if they continue on this path, They will find at the end of their lives a judgment without mercy. That's the warning that Jesus has on the Sermon on the Mount. He gives this picture of a man who has listened to everything Christ has said and obeys it as a man who builds his house on a rock, right? And the storms come, and he still stands. But then there is the foolish man, the one who listens to everything Christ has said, And still walks his own way. And he is pictured as a man who builds his house on the sand. And the same storms come. And the house falls. And great is the fall of that house. It would be a dark passage indeed if that's where James left us. But it's not. The very last thing that James says is that mercy triumphs over judgment. Think about this. The mercy that Christ has showed you is to be bestowed on others. When you show mercy to others, when you show that same mercy that Christ gave to you to others, you show your desire to obey the king. You show your love for the king. You demonstrate that your heart has been transformed by his mercy and his grace. Our merciful attitude and actions toward others count as evidence of the presence of Christ within us. We are reminded in this passage that we cannot perfectly fulfill the law. James points out that when we fail with this sin of partiality, we, we break the law. We are transgressors of the law. And amazingly enough, James says that by breaking one point of the law, we've broken all of it. But notice verse 11, why James can say this. For he who said... The law isn't about a list of commands. It's about the lawgiver. The reason why partiality is so wrong, if we go back to the Old Testament even, why were the Israelites supposed to love their neighbors? Because these are the very people of God. These are the ones that God has saved. And how dare you dishonor the honored? 
No wonder he brings into the picture adultery and murder. Adultery is not wrong simply because you're committing evil against another person by being unfaithful. It's wrong because that's the person that God has given you to be faithful with, to remind yourself of God's faithfulness to you. Why is murder so wrong? Is it just because it's a human life that's taken? No, it's because that life was given special value to God. And you've taken that away. Same thing with our judgment towards others. Christian, in what way are you judging others in your heart tonight? How do you view the very saints around you? Is there anyone in this room that you could not be blessed by? In your heart, is there someone that you do not even address or think of because you've put them in a category of they're too difficult? They're not growing anyway. I'm talking to people who come to Sunday night church who are obviously faithful, but we can walk away from the word unchanged because we do not see the seriousness of this sin. I'll finish with a hymn that with a song that has meant a lot to me recently. And we sing it here at church. (laughs) Just a part of it. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. Through every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Christ alone, cornerstone, the weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. Whatever we face in this life, Christ is Lord of all. And that should shape everything we are, every relationship around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is powerful. We thank you that it transforms us. And there are ways tonight that it needs to change us. It needs to convict us. It needs to help us see the needs around us, the need for Christ. We are about to have a ministry to our community. And what a poor testimony it would be if, if we do not get these things settled in our hearts and amongst ourselves before we go out and witness to a world who needs to see the love of Jesus, not only in our hearts, but amongst ourselves. And they do not need to see favoritism. They already see enough of that out in the world. They need to see Christians who remember where we have come from, remember the mercy that we have received, and how much we love to bestow that same mercy on others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And for their ongoing support, especially through Clayton's recent surgery, um, he wanted me to share this with you. The text cards and meals have been a huge encouragement and help. We are very grateful for a successful surgery with no complications. And while he is well on his way to full recovery, we ask for prayer for complete healing of his body over the next several weeks. Um, Also, along with that, for Clayton, they are praying um, that they learn how to care for him, how to make him comfortable, how they 
can navigate this new stage of life in his medical care. Um, and then thirdly, they're grateful for Landon, that he seems to need less medical intervention and pray that that continues. And then for Tim and Gina Marie, um, pray for our continued help or health as we help care for an elderly neighbor during the pandemic. And then pray for our testimony with our coworkers, um, and especially for Gina Marie, as this is a very busy time for her. All right, and then for Brad and Jess Tolson, wisdom in parenting. Pray for them for strength in this pregnancy and then daily faithfulness. For Tina, she's having some ongoing challenges with her car, um, with registration and some tax issues. So pray for Tina. That's kind of been a headache for her. Um, pray that she's able to work that out, even as she works on that this week. And then for Dwayne and Cindy Andrew, pray for continued faithfulness and that they make good decisions as they're raising Luke. All right, let's break up into groups. Um, find somebody around you. We'll pray together through these requests. We'll leave those up on the screen. And then I'll come and close our time together um, with a word, a final word of prayer. All right, let's break up into groups.